Good morning. This is attorney Steve Blabake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Answering your questions, giving out some advice on this uh, beautiful Sunday. And here we go into another week of interesting tips, topics, news, information, all good stuff, all legal information that you need to know how to protect yourself, how to uh, prepare for any particular situation, and also what your rights are in a particular situation. And most of the time, we just don't know what the law means or what it says or how it affects us personally. And when you get caught up in a situation, it can become rather stressful really quickly. And so in this particular situation or any situation, if you have a question or you're dealing with a problem, that's what we're here for every week. I'm here every week to help guide you through the maze that is the law today, point you in the right direction, give you some stress relief, and hopefully help a lot of folks out there who are dealing with the same or similar questions. You know, that's uh, that's what we do, and I've been doing it now, I think, nine years, and we're going on 10. So we've been, uh, thanks to everybody listening, at, by the way, we've been doing a wonderful show for a lot of people. And of course, through your support, we're continued to able to do this show. And you support the show by not only seeing me in the office, but also by calling in, asking questions, inquiring, or sending me questions during the week. So, you know, that's how we can work through problems together. And, you know, being an attorney for 26 years gives you a certain level of expertise and knowledge and understanding of different areas of the law. And I, I always tell my clients, it's not what the law says. It's really how your attorney can figure out to put you in the best situation with your facts and how they interplay with the law. And so in this, in any situation, every case is different. And you've heard me say this a million times, if I haven't said it once, it, every case is different when it applies your case facts to a particular area of the law. And whether you're asking a judge for something very simple or whether you're asking for something very complicated, those issues have to be presented in a certain way. And that's what you hire an attorney for. You say, hey, Mr. Attorney or Miss Attorney, I'm hiring you because I need you to present my facts to the court in the way it happened to me so that the court understands my situation and then let the court make a decision. Now, that's generally the goal. And the way I approach cases is I look at the facts of every situation. I look at the facts of a particular case and I say, what are, let's start at the beginning. And so we start at the beginning of a case. And what do I mean by start at the beginning? I mean, how did the case happen? Was it a car accident? Was it a contract issue? Was it a, um, perhaps a boundary dispute? Was it a probate issue? What happened? And then you start with the very beginning. You always start at the beginning and you always go forward. You know, some of my biggest wins in courts have always been on the most basic of issues. Due process. Um, right of confrontation. Um, the right to um, uh, assert a particular type of defense. Okay. Or statutory interpretation. What does the law say? And, you know, I, I go back to a case I had, and this gentleman was, he was a very kind person. Um, he had a house 
And this house uh, he had inherited from his parents had been in his family for a very, very long time. Now, when he inherited this house, it had a number one on it. And that number one had been on that house for, let's say, 100 years, for, for argument's sake. Well, at a point in time, the town came through and said, everybody on the left-hand side of the street is now going to be an odd number, and everybody on the right-hand side of the street is now going to be an even number. So in that situation, his number was supposed to change from one to two. So the person across the street changed their number from, one, from two to one, and he refused to change his number. Okay. So now he goes through the process of um, he gets a citation from the town. And the town says, if you don't change your number in 30 days, we're going to start fining you uh, 50 or or $100 a day for every day that you have a violation. All right. So he says, I'm not changing my number. And they start sending him fine letters. So he hires an attorney out of, I think it was out of, a very large firm. Uh, he got shuffled around quite a bit. I only know this because I, I reviewed the entire file. And they began arguing in Superior Court for the next three years about freedom of speech, about um, superfluous issues that really didn't have to deal with the issue here. And the issue was, did the town have the right to tell him to change his number from a number one to a number two. All right. If you'd only take a cursory review of the ordinance, you would say yes, because the town enacted an ordinance that said that. And the state constitution says towns and municipalities have the right to enact ordinances for the safety and protection of their uh, public. And because this was a fire issue that the fire department wanted to be able to respond either to the left side or right side, they had the right to do it. So they start arguing these big, lofty issues, like I said, freedom of speech and other, other broad-based issues. And now this case has been going on three years. So now he comes in and sees me. And he says, you know, Stephen, I just don't know what to do. I've spent, you know, $50,000, $60,000 on legal fees. We've been arguing for three years over this. The town is now telling me the fine is, you know, over $100,000. They're going to put a lien on my house. Uh, my attorney says I need to settle the case and change my number. In any event, I said, you know, first of all, you have to, you know, you have to hire me. But secondly, after you hire me, let me start with the beginning. Let me go through the whole file. So I go through the whole file and I see this file is mostly comprised of paperwork and arguments about things that I felt were not relevant to the case. So I pull up the ordinance from the time when he was originally fined. Now, this ordinance was enacted, and it was in place at the time he was fined. And I'm reading through the ordinance, and it says that the first fine shall be no less than the 16th day of the month after the violation. And so it, 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 I pull out the letter from the town. They sent it on the 15th day. It's, it was uh, unbelievable to me that nobody had caught this. I filed a one-page motion to dismiss in Superior Court. They filed a, like a 300-page objection 
the case was dismissed with prejudice. He still had the number on his house. And this goes to any type of case. You always have to start at the beginning of the case to see what happened, what triggered the circumstance between the parties. In other words, did the issue that we're arguing about now come from something that we could address uh, early on? And that goes for a purchase and sales agreement on the sale of a house. It goes towards if you want to evict a tenant, it goes towards a dispute regarding zoning, or if you're applying for a zoning variance, it goes to an appeal. Okay. All of those issues are on the table. And so it's so important to always start at the beginning and go forward. And that's why I say some of my greatest legal successes have been when I get to the beginning of an issue and realize that there was an issue that was missed. And I'm just going to tell you one more story. And, you know, I like to I love to talk about stories. And again, the number here is 401-438-9776 or 1-800-321-WPRO. So <clears throat> individual signs a contract to sell their home. All right. Now they signed the contract to sell their home and um, they were told by their real estate agent, do not put in the contract that you need suitable alternative housing or something similar that you need to buy a house. In other words, to move into. So they don't put that in the contract for sale because they were so certain they were going to be buying this other house in North Carolina. Well, the house person who was selling in North Carolina apparently passed away. Uh, they pulled out of the deal. There are different laws in North Carolina. You know, they can't hire an attorney in North Carolina to sue them. So they went to the people who were buying their house and said, look, you know, you, you knew we were trying to buy this other house. We can't. And they sent a lawyer's letter saying, hey, uh, by the way, you have a contract. We're going to sue you for what's called specific performance to make you or compel you to sell us this house. So now they're panicking. They're hitting the panic button. And they're trying, they can't talk to anybody. So, so anyway, they come in and see me. A lovely couple, um, very stressed. They didn't know if they should stop packing. They didn't know if the court was going to throw them out of their home. I mean, you talk about a stress level of one to 10. They were close to 10. Okay. I stopped back at the beginning. And I start looking through the emails between the real estate agents who um, were part of this transaction and who were emailing one another saying, yes, they, they're buying this house in North Carolina. Yes, this contract, you know, whether or not we're going to make it subject to it. And I saw in the emails that they had some communications. Well, that helps a little bit, right? Shows that there was some intention there. So then I asked the real estate agent, where is the escrow deposit? And apparently this buyer never delivered the escrow deposit to their agent, even though the contract said a deposit had been made of $5,000. So there's a problem there. Understand, in order for there to be a contract, in order for a contract to be binding, you need promises from one another. In other words, I'm going to promise to do A and you're going to promise to do B. Then you need what's called an exchange of consideration. And that exchange of consideration can be money or it could be services. Once the exchange of consideration occurs, both parties are bound by that contract. 
because there was never an exchange of consideration or the other agent forgot to collect the escrow deposit, okay, because they forgot to collect it, I immediately sent a notice not only to the other attorney but to the other agent saying we're rescinding the contract, which means we're canceling it and terminating it. There's been no exchange of consideration, and as a result, there is no agreement. If they wish to renegotiate, we'll renegotiate. Now, we did receive a backup letter from their attorney saying, oh, no, they um, they did an inspection, and that's consideration. Well, it's not consideration, and we're on very sound legal ground for my clients not to have to pack up and not go anywhere. I mean, it's very scary all along when you get yourself in these situations, but starting at the beginning is the most important part of every single case. Now, my name is attorney Steve Levake, host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Um, we are live and Tiffany's got us working great. Thank you. Thousand thank yous, Tiffany, today. This is this is wonderful. And um, she's a, our new producer here at WPRO, and she's just doing a great job for us. So it's just wonderful. We'll be back. All right. For the real story behind some of wrestling's biggest moments, it's something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson, too. 1995, when WCW announces they're going to be live and head-to-head with Monday Night Raw, feels like this would have been something Vince would have kind of laughed off. No, we did not like them moving to Monday nights. There were a lot of hotels. They all carried CNN, TBS, and TNT. Vince was convinced that Ted Turner had deviously done this deal to get in the hotels and keep us out. Something to wrestle wherever you listen. We're back. This is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. And we're going into our second 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 segment here where we're going to be answering some questions that I've received um, via online and questions that I received in the office. And, you know, I love to talk about the questions that everybody gives me a call on. You know, these are good questions. Um, They're questions that affect everyone and protecting your own interest. You know, the first thing I want to say is that um, when you're entering into any type of transaction, whether it's a real estate transaction, whether it's a a transaction to buy a car or a transaction to hire somebody, if you feel pressured or you feel uh, as if somebody is saying it's a do or die situation, in other words, you have to sign this real estate contract now, or they're going to walk and no one's ever going to buy your home for what you have on the table. Now, you, you hear that. The first thing you need to do is you need to step back because that type of pressure is never a good thing. There are going to be issues that are open ended, as I discussed before, and unresolved. And so having understanding, and if you feel that pressure, especially in a legal situation, whether you're dealing with a business transaction, um, maybe you're dealing with a uh, purchase and sales agreement, or maybe you're selling a business, you step back and you say, you know what, um, right now I need 24 hours to consult my attorney. If anybody says to you, well, that's no good. If you consult an attorney, this deals off. Well, then that's telling you right out the bat, right out of the gate that this is a bad situation. Now, a lot of times folks will come with me with business problems and you say, well, you know, what could go wrong? You know, I, I just went into business with my friend, uh, Billy Bob and he, Billy Bob and me are going into business and, and we're going to have a, we're just going to do a simple LLC 
and we're each going to put $25,000 in and we're going to work this and we're going to turn it into something special. That sounds great. What are the terms of your business agreement? How much are, is each party expected to work? Uh, what happens if one of you dies? What happens if one of you wants to sell? What happens if one of you needs to force the other one out? These are the issues that I see. You see, because when you're going into that business and you're starting that business and you're creating something and it's, it feels good, right? It feels great to be creating something and starting something that you feel is going to have a, a longevity to it. The reality is that you, 60, 70, 80% of the time, you're going to be seeing me for one of those questions. And I see this all the time. And it starts small and it gets big. And what do I mean by that? I mean, all of a sudden, one party's at the office every single day of the week, working nine, 10 hours a week, and the other party's only there working maybe 20 hours a week. And resent starts building in because they're getting 50% of the profits. So what do you do, right? Or what happens if somebody passes away and their shares now go to either their children or their spouse? How are you going to be in business with them? What is the buyout provision? What happens if the two of you realize you just can't work together? None of those issues exist. Don't you need an agreement in advance that says if you can't work together, how do you break it up? How do you divide it up? Well, you know, these are issues that you really need to address and spend time on to make sure that they're in place. Now, I know it costs money to go through that process. And you know what? You may never even use those documents because it may just be that 20, one out of 20 chance that, you know, you're, you're going to be the happy and successful all the way through. But having something in place when it goes wrong is the best thing to do. So a lot of folks will call me about businesses and about business related issues and about sale of business and how do we value a business and all of these different issues that come up when we're dealing with business and business related issues, even even in the sale of a business. How are the proceeds supposed to be divided up? Well, technically, if you own 50 50 shares, they get divided 50 50, even if somebody else had more capital improvement than the other person. It's it's you know, it, and if you have to go to court over a business. Most of the time, the business ends up being dissolved and sold to a third party or liquidated in the assets sold to a third party at nominal cost. Understand, anytime you have a court intervention to force a sale, you're in a situation where that equity or the value of your business is now diminished and diminished substantially because it's a forced sale, sort of like a foreclosure or sort of like a repossession. You're not getting fair market value, you're getting liquidation value. And that's, you know, unfortunately, that's an unfortunate side effect of not planning in advance and not preparing in advance. Now, of course, the number here is 1-800-321-WPRO, a 401-438-9776, 401-438-9776. Um, one of the other questions I have is about appeals. And so I just want to talk a little bit about appeals. If you're unhappy with a decision from a court, most of the time you have the right to make an appeal to a higher court. Now, there are time frames on those appeals. So those time frames have to be met. For example, in probate court, 
if you don't file an appeal properly within 20 and then 30 days with the superior court, if you miss that, you could be barred from making an appeal at all. And the same thing with the zoning appeal. Let's say you're a neighbor of your of a of a neighbor and that neighbor is putting on an addition that's going to be one foot for the property line and three stories tall and it's going to be towering over your home and you want to appeal the grant of that decision by probate court uh, by zoning you have to do it within a certain period of time what are one of the other requirements when making an appeal in order for an appeal to go forward well another requirement is that you can't raise new issues on an appeal. So if you're in court and your attorney does not raise a particular issue while you're arguing your case in court and then you appeal it, you can't raise that issue at a later date. It's called the raise or waive rule. And it means exactly that. You either raise the issue when you're having your hearing, your trial, um, your administrative hearing, your arbitration, or you waive it on appeal. And that can have real potential effects, especially if the issue is material to an appellate court. Like, for example, the time frame to make an appeal. Now, all of these issues come up on a regular basis. See, I see all of these issues and I'm not bashful about going to court and arguing cases. And I have a certain demeanor that I think, um, you know, you get after 26 years in court that you were able to present a case respectfully and also present a case where you're uh, going to win in a way that is um, uh, a jury can appreciate. And I've learned that over trying cases in superior court and arguing cases before the Supreme Court, how you make those types of presentations. And it takes time and experience to do that. It really does to be able to navigate the legal system as if it's seamless. A lot of my clients, when we go to court or we, we have hearings or trials and they'll come out and they'll say, you know, it almost seemed like you just did it. it like you didn't have, you weren't nervous. You didn't have to prepare. And that's the key. See, the key is the preparation. For example, if I'm going to, or when I did cross-examine an expert witness on business valuation in a case, I prepared for that cross-examination. I researched what is it, what does a business valuation expert do? How do they do it? You review the report, you find issues, and then you bring those issues to light in a very particular manner. And so the reality is that in legal work, preparation is 90%. Presentation, well, presentation's important too, but in my point of view, presentation it should just come naturally if you're properly prepared for the matter at hand. Now, the number here is 1-800-321-WPRO or 401-438-9776, 401-438-9776. I had a couple of more questions, one about personal injury with a car accident. I had a question about a divorce. I had three questions about probate. Um, we've been, we've been very busy in probate uh, lately and well, I'm always busy in probate. I do a lot of probate work uh, all over the state of Rhode Island and some in Massachusetts. 
Um, and also, by the way, we're going to be able to start doing probate and bankruptcy work in Connecticut. So a really wonderful thing that we'll be able to start expanding into, thanks to my daughter uh, passing the bar in, in every state, as a matter of fact, Rhode Island, Mass, and Connecticut. So that was a, a real blessing in disguise. And uh, she's getting sworn in November 2nd. And then we're trying to get her picture on the website. And she's got her own business cards now. But, of course, she's got to learn. You know, it took me a long time to learn. you got to learn. So she'll be working under my wing for over for quite some time until she's there. But um, you'll see her in my office when you come in. You'll also see my uh, my number one mascot. He's, uh, he's a little uh, shih tzu. He's, uh, his name is Winston. And he comes up to my work with me sometimes. He comes in and mulls around and says hello to folks and then goes and lays down. He's kind of a little bit of a lazy bones, but uh, he's a happy little camper too. This is attorney Steve LeVake, your host of Legal Tips. We're heading into the middle of the road break. And when we come back, we'll get to those questions. We'll be back. Susie Schuster and Amy Trask present offbeat conversations and expert sports commentary as they ask, what the football? Carson Wentz got signed by the Rams. I sat in those league owners meetings for almost 30 years, and the trade deadline was a hot topic. Push the trade deadline back so that teams that are in contention still have an opportunity to sign people. And there were other owners who said, no, we don't want players rented and we don't want fire sales. They had to make an addition, and they chose what they thought was best. I'm just not wowed by him. What the football? The podcast. Podcast is available Tuesdays, wherever you listen. In just a minute, just a minute. Now, here's the situation, and here's my advice on the situation. Person got in a car accident. They were hit on sideswiped while they were driving, just driving down the road. Somebody blew through a stop sign and hit them. They were really hurt. They have a broken clavicle, and they came in to see me, and they brought the police report. And we reached out to the insurance company for the party who hit the car. Apparently, they only have a $25,000 policy, which obviously, as you can only imagine, the medical bills alone are going to far exceed that. So my next question is always, can I see your policy? Can I talk to your insurance agent? And they say yes. I find out that they have uninsured motorists but they only have a $25,000 policy for uninsured motorist coverage. Um, and so here's, here's my thing. Most states only require bare minimum for, uh, to drive a car, which is 20 or $25,000 of insurance. And so the reality is that when you're driving on the road, not only do we have to drive defensively nowadays and, and pay attention because of people texting or driving erratic or driving hostile on the road. But we also have to be aware that we have to have insurance in place for ourselves. So one of the things you, you can do when your policy comes up for renewal in 2024 is you can tell your insurance agent that you want to increase your uninsured motorist coverage. Now, it's a very small cost. It usually does not cost that much to increase it even from 25 to 100. What does uninsured motorist coverage do? Well, it's, it's called uninsured or underinsured. So if somebody's driving with no insurance or somebody's driving with not enough insurance, as this was the case, basically your insurance company will step in to their shoes and pay you or compensate you for your loss. It does not count against you because you're not at fault and they failed either to have insurance or fail to have enough insurance. 
So having underinsured or uninsured motorist coverage is extremely important. And even if you don't have collision on your car, get underinsured, uninsured motorist. Now, it's not going to cover for it doesn't cover car repairs, but it covers for your body. It covers if you lose time from work or if um, if you have to go in for surgery and you have a permanent scar or permanent issue that you have to live with the rest of your life, at least you have something in place. So vitally important to have that insurance in place. And just don't do the bare minimum. Ask what is the difference of cost? And if it's, you know, if it's a cup of coffee once a month, get the insurance to get yourself protected. Another question came through, and this question had to do with a probate issue, probate related issue. And this person came in to see me and they said, you know, I just don't understand. You know, the probate case has been open three years. What is going on? You know, I can't get any answers. My sibling isn't talking to me anymore. They said I was harassing them that, you know, whatever the situation is. So there's been a breakdown of communication. It's caused a family rift. And now the siblings don't talk to one another. No one really knows what's going on. So I said, well, first of all, you have the right to be represented. Even if you're not the executor, you have the right to hire your own attorney, you have the right to be represented. Second of all, I need to see the file. So the first thing I do, like I tell you all the time, I start at the beginning. I go down, I pull the file. Now understand, when you file a probate, ordinarily, the executor or administrator needs to file with the probate court a document called an inventory. Now, that inventory form details out the assets that they estimate are in the estate. So that includes, now, that would include bank accounts. That would include maybe expensive jewelry or paintings or art, a vehicle. It could include a house if it was just in their name alone. So all of these things get included in there, and that way everybody kind of knows what they're dealing with. Well, I find out that after three years, the inventory hasn't even been filed. Matter of fact, there's been no accounting. So the first step that we're going to do is we have the right to petition the court for what's called an account or inventory. And we're petitioning the court to order the executor in this case to produce the inventory and to produce an account as to where is the proceeds of the estate. Where's the money? What's going on? That gives us a court date. And most of the time that will prompt somebody to get back to us, an attorney, and get us the information we're requesting, which that's all it is, is providing information. But you have that right. So if you're on the other side of the fence in a probate case, you do have the right to make requests of the court even for example if the court says yes you have to produce the inventory and you have to produce the accounting you'd have the right to say okay court i want a follow-up date or something called a status date to say hey look court i want to keep this on a short leash i want this done in you know six weeks which is fairly short in the legal time frame and get this done. And we, we want a follow-up date so that way we can make sure that these things get done. So that's your right. So just because you're on the other side of the fence and you're in the dark doesn't mean that you don't have certain rights. Now, you have to understand 
when the person who files the probate is appointed the executor, they hired the attorney. The attorney represents the estate. The attorney really doesn't owe you any obligations. They don't, they don't owe you things. They only represent the estate, and they work at the direction of the executor. Now, obviously, the attorney owes an obligation to the estate not to steal money or not to do things that aren't right with the court, right? Those are standard legal stuff. But for you personally, the attorney doesn't owe you any personal obligation because they don't represent you. An attorney can only represent one party to a transaction unless there's certain waivers and things like that. So, you know, in this particular situation, you have to get your own attorney. That's what they did. They hired me to file the petition to render an account and inventory. And unfortunately, it's cost money to make somebody to do something. But maybe this will get the case to a point where we can actually get the probate case heard and get it administered. So a lot of people tell you know a lot of people on the other side of the fence say you know Stephen what's involved with this administration thing executor thing like wh why is it hard? Well, the first thing is you have to understand that the administrator or executor has to gather the assets. That may be selling real estate, it may be cashing out savings bonds, which ca just cashing out savings bonds could take six to nine months okay it takes a long time it could be cashing out stock accounts and if you're cashing out stock accounts sometimes you have to get what's called duplicate certificate stock certificates and that can take six months then putting in the order to sell could take another six months so all of these things kind of percolate and come to a head when we're dealing with you know complex issues now, if you're dealing with a more straightforward probate estate where you're dealing with the sale of a house, maybe the liquidation of a bank account, a sale of a car, you know, standard time frame, six to nine months, you should be all set on that unless there are some complicating factors. When we deal with, you know, stock accounts or larger estates where maybe we're dealing with 1.2, a three, a six or a $10 million estate. There are larger issues there because not only do we have to file our final estate tax return with division of taxation, but we also have to go through the process of trying to liquidate accounts. And sometimes you run into stonewalling, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes the banks put up hurdles that we have to jump over that we have to get court orders for sometimes with even with cashing out uh, savings bonds that can be complicated, for example, when I was the executor of an estate and I had to cash out savings bonds and we had to go back, it took me nine months to get those savings bonds cashed out. And uh, sometimes some estates that I serve as executor on, we're, um, you know, representing the estate because the family wants me to do that. You know, we're waiting on things such as uh, the final tax refund, for example, on an estate where I serve as an executor. We filed a tax, a tax return because uh, the person worked the majority of the year and they were entitled to like a $15,000 tax refund. And that those taxes were filed uh, six months ago. We still haven't heard back from the IRS. And of course, the family's calling me saying, Stephen, where's the tax refund? When are we going to close this estate? So there are complicating factors that sometimes are just out of your control. But in the original situation I was talking to you about where it's been three years 
and no inventory has been filed, no accounts been filed, you know, that's telling me that we really need to dig in. And in that particular case, we may be, once we get those, that information, we may make a request of the court to subpoena the bank records to see where the money's gone and how the money has been spent. And that's going to be a very interesting because when you start looking at bank records, you really start to see the picture of how the money's been used, whether it's been used or commingled for personal use or individual use. And that, that can become an issue. Now I'm not saying that's the case here, but you just don't know until you really start to dig in. And that's why you have the right to hire your own attorney. Alrighty, we're heading into our last break, and then we're going to go right up to the top of the hour. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about some deed issues that I think are so important that you understand your deed-related issues. And we're also going to talk about some um, other issues pertaining to uh, trusts and, and special needs trusts. So my name is Attorney Steve LeVake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. We'll be back in just a minute. So we're going to go right up to the top of the hour now. <clears throat> um, so a couple of couple more questions and issues that came up. And I see this a lot. Okay. So here's the situation. Uh, mom and dad passed away. They left three pieces of property to their children. Now, when they went through probate, uh, the attorney prepared the deed, leaving the property to the children and put on the deed joint tenants. All right. So let me tell you what happened. So this particular individual came in and saw me. And when they came in and saw me, they said to me that, um, you know, look, uh, here's a situation. Um, uh, oh, my phone's uh, beeping. I apologize for that. <laughs> so they said, here's the situation. The, the situation is that... Um, uh, my parents left us the, the property and when they left us the property, they had the, uh, they, all three of us. Now my father passed away last month and we called my aunt and uncle and we said to them, you know, what do we need to do to get the deed transferred into our name? All right. So what does that mean? Like, for example, uh, how, what was the problem? So the aunt and uncle said, oh, we checked with our attorney. You're not entitled to anything, nothing from the three properties. So the children, the two kids came in and saw me and they said, you know, Stephen, um, look, what's going on? This was my father's interest. You know, our mother's still alive, but this was our father's interest. He willed it to us. It was in his will saying he left his interest in those three properties to us 50-50. And now they're telling us we have no right to it. So I said, well, let me go back and let's look at the deeds. And I look at the deeds and I see that on the deeds 20 years ago, when the parents passed away, the attorney put the words joint tenants on the deeds. And I said to them, I said, that means that when one of them dies, the other one becomes the owner of the property. And so they said, what? What do you mean? I said, joint tenancy means that if I own it with you and you die, I own it 100%. It doesn't go to your children or grandchildren or your will or anything like that. 
I said, clearly the intention was wrong on the deeds. The intention should have been tenants in common, especially if your father thought he was leaving you this property. So the lesson here is if you own property with somebody else, read your deed. So if an attorney prepares a deed and gives it to you from a probate, from a real estate closing, and there were more than one name on two names, three names, four names, read the deed. Does it say joint tenants? And if so, if it does say joint tenants, then what that means is that it doesn't go down your line. It goes to the survivor of you. Or does it say tenants in common? And by the way, a deed overrides a will. So if you have a deed, in, in your deed, your deed says um, uh, Sally Sue and Bobby Jones as joint tenants. But your brother and sister, and you both know that when one of you dies, you want to leave the property to your children or to the other person. That means that your intention on the deed is incorrect and you need to fix it. So listen, if you've inherited property or you're on the property with somebody else or you co-own property, whatever your situation is, read your deed. If it says joint tenants, it means it's going to the other person upon their death, not your family, which probably is not your intention. If it says tenants in common, then that means it goes to your family. And if you don't understand what's on the deed, go see an attorney. So my recommendation today is if you've inherited property or you've acquired property with another person, you, you review your deed. And if you don't understand what is on the deed or what it means, you go see an attorney. And by the way, even if it says joint tenancy, that can be fixed before something happens. And your attorney will know how to do that. I know how to do that. All right. So we're wrapping up the show. So this is attorney Steve Lovake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Uh, of course, we're wrapping up the show this week. We will be live next week. And this is just working out great. A thousand thank you to my new producer, Tiffany and She's got us working seamlessly, so to speak, almost. Get an inside look at Hollywood with Michael Rosenbaum. Let's get inside of my father, John <laughs> Glover. You know, we watch talk Phil, and most of these episodes I never saw. I didn't watch the show. You never once saw yourself on Smallville. In the beginning, I used to look at myself all the time and love to. And then as I get older, I stopped. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe because I'm older. <laughs> I was going to talk to you about that because you're 79. Yeah. How old do you feel? 11. Inside of you with Michael Rosenbaum. Wherever you listen. <laughs>